Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, I am talking to Catherine, the CEO of GIB Asset Management. I love speaking to Catherine as she is so purpose-driven, sustainability-focused and people and culture-obsessed. She has amazing experiences from being the CEO of a FTSE 100 company for seven years to sitting on lots of amazing boards, including Deutsche Bank and, of course, Gusto. Today, we're talking about how she stumbled into finance and why she stayed, her leadership values and journey, and how she thinks about doing good through business. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time. You have spent almost 30 years in the world of finance. And of that, you've been a CEO for roughly 15 years. And so I can't wait to delve into some of your leadership uh, learnings from that journey. But before we go into it, I would love to hear where you grew up and how it was like. Well, Timo, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. And I reflect back on my childhood as being a very happy time. I was born and brought up in the south of England and think that a lot of probably what shaped me as a person was that very clear sense of family around me. So I'm hugely close to members of my family. I have three fabulous brothers that keep me on the straight and narrow. And uh, I think probably it was one of the reasons that uh, spurred my husband and I in later life to also have a handful of children because it's certainly been a very important part of my life in terms of keeping me grounded, keeping me centered. And I think this sense of actually, you have a deep sense of responsibility. So I'm the eldest uh, of my siblings and I think I've never lost sight of that sense of responsibility. It's it's so similar. I don't have three siblings. Uh, sorry, I have three siblings, not three brothers, um, and I'm the oldest one too. Um, so I definitely relate to the to the sense of responsibility, and so loyalty, family. What else? Kind of what what of your values today come from uh, your your childhood? So there were some really important aspects of my childhood that I think still stay with me today. I think a sense of perennial learning. I've always been an avid reader. I remember my father standing by my cot when I was still relatively small, holding up flashcards with, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you couldn't make it up really, but I think if I asked him today, he would still remember the same thing. There was this very kind of old fashioned little box and he would hold up flashcards and some were in red and some were in black. And, uh, you know, we started off with the basics like arm and leg and elbow. <laughs> elbow was the one I really remember. But so why does that matter? Because um, I think from a very early age, I've been a hugely avid reader and keen reader. I mean, I, I often have uh, two or three books on the go at any given time. I, I'm very fortunate in that 
I read extremely fast. So I can devour lots of information very quickly and, and, you know, try to get to the salient point. But I'm also a bit of a stickler for accuracy. So uh, throughout my entire professional career, um, I'm probably one of the few people that constantly picks up typos. And I know it drives everyone crazy because they go, oh, I should have spotted that. I didn't want it to be you. But so I think reading, learning, being open to all sorts of literature around me has been very, um, very informative. And, you know, the other thing, which perhaps is not so obvious for somebody who's spent so long in finance, um, has been the, in the importance and impact of music in my life. So I played three musical instruments all through school, got to the top grades in most of them. I used to do a lot of singing, choral, mostly classical. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that's important about music is that I, I can happily play by myself in terms of some of my instruments, but actually um, as a flautist, you're part of an orchestra mm -hmm. and you're only ever as good as the others around you. And that also goes for being in a choir. And so I think this sense of actually what's the part that you play mm -hmm. with a wider group of people around you has also been something that probably has shaped some of my thinking around leadership, life, and, and things such as that. Was there a point in time that you considered pursuing music professionally? <laughs> uh, many. <laughs> <laughs> there were many. And uh, actually, I also used to do a, a huge amount of acting. So I did all of the RADA and Lambda exams. Um, oh. I used to write screenplays. I used to write lots of things. And um, as I was coming to the end of my schooling, I remain, remember saying to my parents that, you know, I'd absolutely find, found my calling. I, I, was, I was going to be an actress. That's really what I wanted to do. I felt I had a life on the stage or screen, my music, my drama, the sort of a, a life of performance um, was, uh, was looming, right? And my father said, yeah, and how are you going to make a living? Uh, and at that point, he said, well, how about you go to university, you know, sort of build upon your academics, so far, if at the end of university, you know, you still absolutely are dead set on uh, going to drama school, great, but why don't you try that first? And I have to say, he was, he was dead right. I went to university. I learned all sorts of different things about myself and about life and where I wanted to focus. And I, I've never really looked back. So, uh, but I often think that perhaps some of the reasons that I enjoy public speaking and some of the things that I, I do as part mm -hmm. of my day job is in part because I'm probably a massively frustrated actor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. And I have to go back to the book point. What are you reading currently? So I am currently reading actually, well, as I said, sort of a couple of books. So the, the one I actually have um, in front of me, which I literally cannot put down, is called Freezing Order mm -hmm. by a friend of mine called Bill Browder. And it's effectively, mm, it's effectively yeah. a book. It's his second book. His first book was Red, Red Notice, Notice. which I book. absolutely sort of loved and, and um, sort of dived into. But I mean, it's a fascinating story and it's very relevant to today. It's all about, you know, what's happening in Russia and money laundering. And I mean, it sort of reads more like a work of fiction mm -hmm. uh, than anything else. But um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. And at, uh, and at the other end of the scale, I'm reading Paul Polman's Net Positive. Mm -hmm. pa Paul is somebody who I've had the great privilege of 
working alongside on different boards over the last 10, 15 years. And I just really like this idea that we need to stop talking about net zero, which is clearly the direction of travel we need at least to be getting to as a minimum, but we need to do more than that. And I just love the fact that he's pushing the business community and each of us to think about what more can we do to make a difference in this whole field of climate? Amazing books. And I mean, if anyone is listening in and hasn't read Bill Browder, wow, um, it's so, so exciting to read his books and so topical right now. And in general, fiction or nonfiction? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, so I'm a historian, really, by background. So I studied history at uh, university and sort of constantly, I suppose, have kept that interest alive. So I really flip between fiction and nonfiction. I've been reading lots of books recently about um, the Middle East, you know, about the sort of rise and fall of, um, of Islam. I mean, it, it just completely depends I mean, the reality, of course, is that lockdown gave me a really good amount of time that I wasn't always mm. trundling around on planes, trains. And I think during lockdown, I probably read close to 65 books Wow! Um, within 18 months. And um, yeah, I just, I, uh, some people have said to me, will I ever write a book? And I'm absolutely not, no writer But I think it's really interesting when you just read different styles, different, you know, mm -hmm. different sort of aspects of things that are either true or fiction. And I just think it's about keeping yourself alive. So, no, I, I don't have any sort of specific <laughs> focus, but I do know I love books and libraries are, are a good place of learning for me. Very similar. Um, although I use Audible which I can use doing the dishes uh, or pushing the buggy uh, on weekends. <laughs> well, you see, that is great. I'm a bit of a, I sort of, again, I'm a bit schizophrenic. I am, I have my Kindle. I mean, if I'm reading sort of 20 books and I'm traveling, it's much easier to have them on my Kindle, but there's nothing quite like freezing order. I'm holding in my hand. It's hardback. I'm turning it's so the pages. Much it's agree. so much fun. So I completely fun. agree. And so you pursued music, wanted to be an actress, studied history. So naturally, your choice was to go into finance. I mean, it was so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Any yeah. AI could unpick that. But yeah, uh, can, you, can you talk us through that? I mean, what's that expression? You know, sometimes things in life are very accidental. And I definitely think I'm probably an accidental financier. So having had that sort of background, and also I would say, having always been somebody very much immersed in the humanities. So, I, I mean, at school and university and latterly, I, I learned to speak various languages, spent a lot of time living in, in Italy, speak Spanish, French, um, sort of always trying to learn a little bit about the language of places that I go. But I think the crux of it is I left university in the eye of an economic recession, And so in some senses, this was back in the very early 90s. Choices for, for kind of humanities graduates were probably few and far between. And so I literally thought, right, I have zero clue what I think I want to do. I, I can pretty much safely say I never visited the careers office of my old university. <laughs> I'm not sure I even knew where it was. Um, and a lot of my contemporaries went into very worthy graduate recruitment 
opportunities. They became lawyers or accountants or many people went into marketing. But for somebody who, who had no clue, I thought, right, I'm just going to go and have a look. And so I set up a whole range of interviews with different sorts of um, sectors and firms and found myself walking through the door of Fidelity International, Mm -hmm. which was at the time and continues to be one of the largest privately owned asset management businesses in the world. And there was just something about it. And, you know, I look back on my time there. I mean, look, I'll be very, very clear. You know, I didn't go in as a graduate in some sort of grand role with a high polluting salary. I went in um, very much in in more of an administrative role. Mm -hmm. And, I worked really closely with two hugely talented fund managers who actually took time to teach me their trade. And I will never forget the time that they gave me and the encouragement that they showed as I then started sitting my investment exams and progressing through the business. And and sort of, I guess it really all started there. It was a sense of belonging that really mattered. Wow. And so how long did you stay for then? So I stayed there, I guess, probably less than two years. And then I was Mm -hmm. offered an opportunity to effectively go and work for a Norwegian firm with my hands on the tiller. I was given hand-on responsibility for managing a large pool of assets uh, on behalf of this Norwegian firm in the North American equity space. And I guess it sort of went from there. And I... I guess after that, I was headhunted to go to Hill Samuel, which is probably really where my investment career took off. Mm-hmm. And at the age of the tender age, you think now it, it's almost unbelievable. At the tender age of 26, I found myself in charge of a, of a team, about five billion pounds of assets, a wow. whole range of investment portfolios. And um, I think I probably couldn't believe my luck. And, and I stayed there with a team I'd built and recruited and absolutely loved working with for nearly nine years. And that was sort of really where it all started. Wow. So what what kind of intrigued you about fund management? You know, fund management is not too dissimilar to history in some senses. I mean, yes, one could say one looks back and one looks forward, but the skills required and not a million miles away. Mm-hmm. In investment, you have to assimilate a huge amount of information very, very quickly and come to a conclusion. You have to sort of see both sides of the argument. You have to be very clear about what, what input sources you're going to trust or not. But I think, you know, for me, that the really compelling reason why I've loved a career in fund management, and I honestly would recommend it to anyone who, who wants to pursue it, is that it's so, so diverse. I mean, no day is the same. No investment is the same. And I look back on yeah, 30 plus years now in this industry, I have had privilege after privilege. I have traveled more than I ever thought was possible. Mm -hmm. I've spent some time in some pretty weird places uh, with (laughs) some strange people and inspiring people, but you learn something the whole time. And so actually back in the early to mid nineties, it was relatively unusual for British based investors to be spending lots and lots of time in very far flung parts of the United States Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in a way, that sort of made the team and I rather unique. 
And we appeared on the front cover of the Wall Street Journal at least twice during my tenure there, far outperforming not only all British investors, but actually many US investors as well. And so I think, what was the moral of that? People were surprised that you could sit so far away from where some of these companies were based and find something that either made it a great investment or one to avoid. And so it was this sense of, well, if it, people say it can't be done, well, maybe it, maybe it can. You just have to do it differently. Wow. And so, I mean, 26 years old, 5 billion assets under management, you're managing a team, you're traveling the world, you kind of made it. How did you feel? I mean, did you just enjoy the moment back then? Did you feel huge pressure to create you know, successful outcomes for shareholders? How did you feel back then? I think it was pretty scary with a benefit of hindsight. <laughs> you know, I also think these things, you know, I think the biggest impact that that whole part of my life has made in terms of the way I think about my industry today is how incredibly important it is to give people a break. Because there were one or two people back then who took a flyer on me, who took a bet that I was the right person to lead the team, to manage the assets, to speak to clients, to speak to our board. You know, that was a pretty big deal back in those days. Mm -hmm. And so I tirelessly now really think about where can we offer opportunities to people that might perhaps not otherwise be in line for that. And so sometimes maybe it's driven me to surprising choices, but it's certainly driven to uh, me to have a massively, massively key part of my life focused on the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sense that you have to be, you know, 50 years old and have done it for 30 years before you get a break, I, I think is just, is never something that's been part of my life. I love that. And I mean, you and I have worked together and I love how you make people feel 10 feet taller than they actually are. And it's really, really <laughs> special and such a super skill in so many ways. And d- did you start to think about leadership skills at that point? I mean, you had to run a team, but not a huge team. You know, did you um, actively think about culture back then? You know, it's a really good question. I I'm not sure that culture per se was a massively large part of the discussions that we had in terms of the firm I was working with, but it was absolutely a critical part of our investment process. Mm-hmm. You know, and to this day, and you know this, you have to be really, really on it in terms of ensuring that the tone from the top is right mm. and that the culture is not just one carried by a handful of people across the organization. You know, and I know that I absolutely kept our investors out of trouble by taking the time to go and do site visits in some, as I say, some slightly out of the way places. And I would always get there early and have sort of five, 10 minutes chatting with the person on reception or the person who opened the door, because that's how you get a feel. You know, you get it unvarnished, unfiltered. And That, I think, is a really critical part of leadership to ensure that it's really a living, breathing artery that keeps your organization alive. Because if it's just a handful of people, then honestly, you can write it on a page. I I love that. I'm literally reminiscing 
because I also worked in a fund, much, much, much smaller 200 million equity fund I managed when I was 26, same age. Um, so wasn't as successful as you were back then, but I also got the opportunity to travel and I did um, travel to see distressed property portfolios in Germany or finding properties that were written off the balance sheet in Austria. Um, I went to Eastern Europe a lot. And so it's really fascinating if you actually can look at the numbers, but then connect the dots and see the assets, meet the people, see how they talk, are they bought in. Uh, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and fun. And so what, what's next then? So you spent nine years there. So I spent nine years there and it was a happy and collaborative, uh, extraordinarily, I would say, fundamental part of my training. And then basically what happened was the organization I was working with was merged with another and pretty much all of us decided to move on. I mean, there were opportunities to stay, but it was clearly going to be a very different beast. And so at that point, I was offered the opportunity to go uh, and work with Martin Gilbert at Aberdeen, which was a fascinating few years because they were in the throes of putting two businesses together. They were dealing with both sort of growth of the business, challenge in parts of the business. It was my first opportunity to sit on a corporate board. And so mm -hmm. I was in my early 30s and, and that is really where I stepped into the whole sort of zone of being a member of a, of a public company. Mm -hmm. So I went with my whole team, actually, because at the time that the merger and the previous organization unfolded, they, they all came to me and said, well, we think what we're building, what we're doing is amazing. We don't want to stop this. Can we find somewhere to go together? And so in, in essence, it was a really wonderful, it was a really wonderful leap in that we all leapt together. And sometimes when you change roles and change companies, it's it's quite daunting. But somehow when you do it with a group of people that you've known for eight, nine years, it sort of softens the blow. And so that was a that was a real roller coaster ride. And I stayed there for around three years until I was headhunted again. And I was offered the opportunity to move to what was then called Morley, which is now Aviva Investors. And it was an entirely different proposition of taking on a role where there was 160 billion of assets, all right. manner of asset classes, a team of about 200, 250 people, offices all over the world, Australia, Poland, Boston, you name it. I had responsibility for clients in all of those sort of areas and in, and in others. And I suppose it was just one of those things where I was I was kind of torn because you don't want to be hopping roles every five seconds, but sometimes you get these opportunities and they don't come around very often. And mm -hmm. I think what one of my sort of mottos is, you know, don't die with with regrets. And I certainly never regretted it. So I moved to Morley for three happy years. And um, again, that was really where I first came into contact with this whole concept of responsible investing, working with a team there who um, I've got to know and, in fact, to this day still work with some of them. Can you elaborate on responsible investing? So it was really this whole concept that one of the best ways, well, was and is one of the best ways to generate significantly better returns for investors is to think very long and hard about both sustainability factors and therefore more responsible avenues of investing. And what do I mean by that? It really means that the sort of base concept is that 
the most important companies and profits will be from those areas of the market that are tackling some of the world's biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to this day, you know, I, I, I guess that sort of mantra has been a hugely important part of my investing life. And it, it's really about taking account of environmental, social and governance factors when you're starting to think about making investment decisions. And I tell you, what I find so incredibly refreshing is that these are conversations that I really never remember having with with my parents or their generation, but they form a hugely important part of the discussions that we now have with our children. Mm. And not to sound cynical, but... You know, a, a lot of times you talk to fund managers and on page number 19, it says, we also care about ESG, but you clearly are extremely passionate about sustainability, have have joined boards um, to actively create change in the world for the better of everyone. So where, where's the passion coming from? So I think the crux of it, Timo, and it's a hard question really to unpack in some ways, but... Mm. I think what has always been a really critical part of, of my life and career is, is to live a life of purpose. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds incredibly trite, but it really, really matters. And I think that we have a handful of years and hours on this precious earth, and they have to count. And I think that one of the things that I observed in my early career was that there were lots of aspects of finance that I didn't particularly like. It didn't feel very collaborative in some senses. Role models were few and far between. It felt all about profits. It didn't feel enough about the end clients or the investors. And that's really shifted. And I'm very, very happy to see that. And if there's any small way that I've contributed to thinking about that as a topic and to putting it more in the sort of front and center of people's psyche, then maybe one iota of my time on this earth will have mattered. Super powerful and um, so aligned. And yeah, extremely excited. You joined a company's board. That's purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. So that makes perfect sense. So you are, you know, changing jobs a few times. You are starting to think about responsible investing bigger and bigger companies, you're sitting on a board or you, or you sat on a board for a while, kind of what, what comes next kind of in terms of leadership challenge? So I think there's no doubt that the, the next sort of, if you like, sort of milestone for me in terms of leadership challenge was being offered the opportunity to step into the role of leading a FTSE 100 company. Mm. And that was at Alliance Trust back in 2007-8. Seems like a lifetime ago now, <laughs> but it was, it, it came with the most, I would say, incredible opportunity, but huge responsibility. Mm. And I think it, it takes a, it definitely takes a, a certain kind of person to want to step into that sort of role. But I felt I was ready in some part. Having said that, I do remember when my chairman called me and said, oh, we've got a great idea. You know, the, the previous CEO had, had left and, and headed back to Asia. You know, we'd now like you to do 
that role. Wow. But I made it very clear at the time that I also still wanted to take on the role and be the, the role that I had been doing before was to be chief investment officer. Mm-hmm. And I'm really pleased that I did because actually it was an investment company, is an investment company being based in, in Dundee since 1888. And I mean, investment was absolutely sort of the, the DNA of the business. And so it was a business that I felt I understood. I could see some of the opportunities. I could equally see some of the things that perhaps hadn't changed enough over previous years. And yeah, it was, again, another nine years that I devoted to supporting the team, supporting our investors and shareholders. And I, yeah, I definitely learned new skills that I wasn't expecting, like, you know, how to draft really kind of detailed documents, how to run (laughs) PR campaigns, how to manage all manner of shareholders, friendly and unfriendly. And you're doing all of that with a massive spotlight on you. And it also came at a time when, candidly, there weren't so many women running FTSE 100 companies. So that comes with a whole additional layer of scrutiny, which is not always always warranted or or welcomed. Mm. But you, you know, you have to do what you do. And I felt it was my duty to have a really good go at creating a lasting legacy, revitalizing the business. We basically built an asset management business within the trust. We completely turned around the fortunes of the savings business. But the important thing, Timo, is, and I know you feel this about your business, it was a team effort. You know, somebody Mm. has to be out in front but if you turn around and there's no one with you as someone once said to me you've just gone for a walk so a whole (laughs) driving force of of all that I've ever done I think has been about wanting to be part of a team it's it shouldn't be about the leader it shouldn't be about you or, or ego you're on a hiding to nothing if that's the case so it was a huge privilege and it came with yeah, I would say massive highs and probably equally massive lows. But on balance, do I look back and think I made a difference? I really hope so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hugely amazing journey. So you're in your late 30s or early 40, 40s. You are becoming CEO of Alliance Trust, FTSE 100 company. Absolutely incredible. Like, talk me through some of the highs. I mean, I think some of the highs would be delivering great performance for shareholders. Mm -hmm. It would be recruiting amazing people to the cause. It would be establishing a really comprehensive, proper corporate social responsible program to support the local community. Uh, One of the great highs was that we went into partnership with the Soldiers Charity, which looks after veterans in the UK. Mm -hmm. And over a number of years, we basically established a big charity walk called the mm-hmm. Catherine Yomp, which continues today, in which we effectively raised money for the charity and at the same time supported this fantastically quite hardcore event, which meant, you know, walking over a 24-hour period, wow. um, depend, depending upon, you know, what distance you wanted to do as there was a kind of bronze, the silver and the gold. But You know, these were special times, Timo, and I look back and actually I was given a rather beautiful book when I left and people had taken time to just write nice messages in. 
And you sort of forget some of those things. And occasionally I'll pull it back out of my sort of dusty bookshelf. And you just remember that there is an ability to create something extraordinary when you work with people who share a common mission. Love, love that. And what did you learn about yourself? <laughs> oh, lots. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure we've got time for everything. You know, I think that, I think probably my biggest learning was that I'm much tougher than I thought I was. I'm much more resilient than I thought I was. And that's, I think, actually stood me in really good stead ever since. It's also important to, to have a feeling that you're part of something great in terms of what you're building. So I look back and I do think we built amazing things. We put great people together. We made a difference. And in some parts, you have to be proud, but you can't look back. You know, I think the most important lesson I've learned is you can dwell too much on things that went well or less well, but you can't change it. Mm. What you've got to do is you've got to take all of the learning, good and bad, the experiences that you have, the people that you've met, mm. um, and it matters. But I'm really not good at lots of things, but I have a phenomenal memory. And to this day, I absolutely remember the people that reached out when it was tough, mm. when times were difficult, the people that reached out and made an effort to call me, to speak to me. And I think to this day, when I see people, particularly in very public leadership positions going through tough times, I really make an effort of just quietly reaching out to them because so many people don't. Mm -hmm. And it matters. It really matters. And I think somebody working in the company or maybe a shareholder, somebody organized you an OBE or CBE, sorry, CBE. Well, you know, you, you never really know how these things uh, um, appear from. But I was very, very fortunate to be nominated, you're right, for a CBE a few years ago. And uh, I can safely say it was one of the proudest moments of my entire life, actually, mm, being able to be with my family at the investiture ceremony. And I was very fortunate and received the C my CBE directly from the Queen herself. It was one wow. of the best moments. I recommend it to you. And <laughs> <laughs> so well deserved. I mean, you've um, had so much positive impact on so many people working there. You know, so many people investing into the company and trusting you there, their savings. I mean, really, really remarkable. A lot of people listening now will feel like you've been so incredibly successful. Can you share some of the tough moments and how you build resilience as a skill over time? You know, I think one of the things that I find tough is when people let you down. Mm. And I take a lot on trust as leaders, we're good at certain things and we need to work on others. You know, one of the ways that I try to support people is I give them quite a lot of rope and I really want people to do a good job. And I find it really hard dealing with situations where sort of in your heart, you're not sure if people will make it, but you just really want it to work. Mm -hmm. And I feel it very, I feel it very personally as they do. And those are the moments that you have to really question 
your purpose in life and mm. your role as a leader. You know, my, my value set in this regard, Timo, is I really always try to treat people as I would like to be treated myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean it because I think it, people are very black and white about these things. And certain decisions have sometimes got to be made as a leader that aren't palatable or easy. But the bottom line is you really need to try to be kind because it's somebody's life in some cases you're dealing with. And so I think some of those people-related decisions are definitely some of the darkest moments because it it hurts and because mm. I care. Mm-hmm. Really, really tough. And you also have a huge vantage point across other businesses because you served on many, many boards, government initiatives, but also Deutsche Bank, for example, which I think you've been on for almost 10 years now. Well, so actually, I I served on the supervisory board of Deutsche for, yeah, actually just around nine years, um, stepping down nearly two years ago. So it seems like a lifetime since then. <laughs> And I mean, board roles, external activities. Personally, I'm a huge fan. Um, especially if you can find time as a working executive to take on these roles. And I'm hugely supportive of my colleagues here at, at GIB doing them because I think you learn something about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to have a perspective from a different point of view. So I, I think that one of, one of my learnings, I suppose, as I've got older is I've got to get better at saying no to things. I mean, one of the reasons that I've <laughs> always been phenomenally busy, and what's that expression, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, is because it's back to that learning that we discussed at the beginning. You know, I love, I love to go home every day and think, right, what did I learn that I didn't know when I woke up this morning? And part of the ability to have a really active and sort of engaged life at work is that, other dimensions of this, which is board roles, whether they're NGOs or corporates or governmental type roles. I mean, I sat on the commission to set up the first, you know, the British Green Investment Bank wow. um, many years ago. And so actually what's been kind of, I suppose, a growing theme in, in my in my non, if you like, my non-executive roles has been that the common weave has increasingly all been to do with climate mm-hmm. and sustainability. And I love the fact that actually it enables me to bring good learning into my organization today mm-hmm. because of the things that I'm picking up. If, if they're so massively different, it's probably really hard to justify and it's probably a little bit too stressful on the ground. But constantly I'm bringing back ideas or thoughts or speakers or initiatives that I see working in other places. And I think that cross-fertilization is sort of what makes us more interesting as leaders. H- hugely, yes. And now you are the CEO of a bank again. And so the last years, <laughs> the last three years must have been hugely eventful. Uh, and here we are in 2022. And again, it feels like the most interesting year, I don't know, since the financial crisis. We did have COVID. That was, that was um, wow. But I mean, can you s- extrapolate some kind of rational prism for the disorientation we see in the world today? That's such an unfair question. I apologize. No, look, I don't think it's an unfair question. I'm not sure I can give you a great answer. I I mean, I think that disruption, whatever way you look at it, is going to just be part of our lives now. Hmm. Um, I think we've learned 
through the horrificness of the global pandemic that we cannot always accurately forecast what will happen. And so I think this whole idea of if we learned nothing about ourselves and our world in the pandemic, it is that we just need to be ready for whatever the world will throw at us. Mm. And I think that the whole field of disruption is something that, you know, I personally spend quite a lot of time thinking about, both in terms of what does that mean for us as leaders? How do we need to lead differently? Um, but also in terms of what's important to colleagues across the business. And, you know, we have a lot of discussions today, or today here, you know, every week about what matters to people now, pre, you know, versus the sort of pre-pandemic times. And I think we're all wrestling at the moment with hybrid working, right? I take this mm. as an example. Has anybody got it right? I don't think I've met one person who thinks we've got it right at the moment. Uh, you know, everyone's, agree. Yeah, everyone's trying different things. And, you know, you know, do you bribe? Is it stick? Is it carrot? But I think ultimately what's absolutely clear is that people's priorities shifted as a result of being stuck at home for two years, as a result of losing loved ones, as a result of organizations going under or flourishing. I mean, there were all manner of outcomes and I think we just have to be very reflective and recognize that the world around us will probably never, ever be the same again. And, and at a macro level, we're obviously seeing this paradigm shift from growth. You know, for the last 20 years, the world has focused on growth um, to now security. And do you think psychological safety and certainty play a much higher importance in a leader's job today? Yes, I do. And... If there's one good thing that's come out of the, the sadness and, and the disruption and confusion of the past few years, it's just that it is now easier and expected to have conversations about things like mental health, resilience, psychological safety. I mean, mm. there's a reason that regulators want to talk about these topics, because mm. it basically made the difference between how organizations flourished or failed during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that in some ways, I reflect back and think about lockdown, most of which I spent with my precious family in Scotland where we live. And I think one of the things that was most beneficial probably for each and every one of us was this sense of an ability to just step back and have space and time to reflect Because the world is so mad. I mean, even now, you know, all of our calendars are crazy. We're back to back and we've got so used to sort of hopping on and off Zooms and we sort of get grumpy when we have to actually go and meet someone sometimes because you have to move from your <laughs> desk or whatever. I mean, you know, I see this, right? But I think that I actually was speaking to somebody last night and he had a wonderful expression when I asked him what he'd really learned about himself over the last sort of two years. And he said it was to find a way to have a quieter core. And I really like that expression. Like, how do you get really centered and just find mechanisms to stop the noise? Because that's how you reflect as a leader. That's how you take the time to really get in tune with actually what matters. And of course, work is critical. But we all now know that there's a, there's a bigger picture here. And it does come back to this point about Are you living a life that matters or mm. not? 
I, I love that point. Um, my bet would be that nine out of 10 people listening have some kind of dopamine addiction, which obviously got massively exacerbated through COVID and then Putin's war. And so I love the focus on, on purpose. Can we do some quick fire questions? You can try. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the best piece of advice you've uh, been given? Best piece of advice I've ever been given is that it is possible to do well and do good. And that mm. piece of advice was given to me by the then chief executive of Unilever, Niall Fitzgerald, and it has stayed with me forever. Very, very powerful and profound. What is your main strength? Oh, my goodness. What is my main strength? Obviously, you have so many. <laughs> yeah, really. I know. I'm thinking, what have I got uh, in my locker? Um, <laughs> I think I'd build great teams. Can you name a, a weakness? I am sometimes too much of a consensus builder. What um, what TV show are you watching? Oh, Ozark. Ah, should look into that. Oh, yeah, it's really good. It's really dark. I saw the trailer. <laughs> it does look dark. Um, what type of music are you listening to? Generally classical. And... You live such an intense life. Um, Davos is coming up and, you know, you travel so much for work. How do you find the balance between work and home life? You know, what energizes your, you? So I really try to be quite disciplined about switching off when I'm at home. And it's become hard when you work from home so much of the time. But I really do try to focus on that sort of separation to enable me to truly switch off. But honestly, I get my real sort of my really peaceful moments. So when I'm far away from anyone, certainly far away from a phone and almost certainly close to water. Amazing. What recipes are you cooking? Do you think I have time to cook, Timo? That's why <laughs> gusto is important. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Perfect. That was the The one answer that really mattered. <laughs> um, how, does, how does a working day look like? Never the same. Never the same. Generally starts pretty early. A combination of calls and meetings. Um, next week, I'm off to the Middle East for a week, traveling to see clients, which I always really enjoy. It's just a complete immersion. But honestly, what I love is that no day is the same. And I think if it was, I wouldn't do my job very well. What advice would you give people starting their career now or, or their leadership journey now? I would say to them that they should find a place they belong so that they can be themselves, not someone that they think they should be. Love it. So much more culture, people, being yourself, being accepted rather than what's my job title, what's my salary. Correct. Very powerful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really fantastic talking to you. Timo. And I, I feel like I learned a lot despite me, me having known you for a while. <laughs> Honestly, it's a total pleasure. And I'm sitting thinking, wow, we're both one of four and we, we really sort of started our careers at the age of 26. So um, hopefully we both have bright futures in front of us. <laughs> no, no doubt. Thanks, Timo. 